Well, hello there, Dr. James K. Harris. Uh, hello, summertime Dr. Nick Flores. Summertime realness, drinks in hand. You uh, are listening to Learning on the Job, where in Dr. James K. Harris and myself, two recent-ish, and I'm gonna ish. hold on to that ish, uh, <laughs> PhDs of color, uh, navigate and discuss the terrain of higher education in the United States, we discuss all kinds of like, you know, really public facing things, but also really like background facing things, you know. Um, you, you just have to listen to like, no, I'm not gonna share it with you here. You gotta listen to like, know and find out. Um, basically, we're trying not to get fired and we're calling it a learning experience. Huzzah. Oh, that's it. That's exactly it. We're trying not to get fired. We're calling it a learning experience. Learning on the we're, job. We're, we're talking to some just God damn smart people. Like, oh, mm, uh, mm, people mm -hmm. who make you go, should I be doing more with my life? <laughs> and the answer to that question is always, we should. And also, you know, let's like set our expectations realistically, you know? Word, word. Like, we can't all everyone. be the baddest of bitches. Speaking of the baddest of bitches, we are talking with one of my favorite people in the entire world, Dr. Angela N. Castaneda, who is the Lester Martin Jones professor, that's full professor, of anthropology at DePaul University, which is also her alma mater. And guess what? My alma mater! Mm -hmm. uh, if you didn't know, she's my uh, advisor. Uh, professor Castaneda's research in Brazil, Colombia, Mexico and the U.S. has focused on religion, ritual, expressive culture, as well as the cultural politics of reproduction, birth, and motherhood. She is currently and engaging in current research around the intimate labor of doulas. Uh, she is herself a doula and practices. So she's unpacking the cultural meanings of attending to birthing people during the transition to parenthood. And she lives in Bloomington, Indiana where she's also a volunteer birth and postpartum doula for the El Centro Comunal Latino there in Indiana. She is, again, the person that I can literally trace the kind of nodal point in the web of Nick's career to. Um, and we get into that a little bit in our conversation today, but I cannot speak uh, highly, more highly of Angela and what she has done and how much she has been there for me since 2008 when I moved to Indiana and decided to, you know, pursue a career in higher education. Um, she's lovely and wonderful. James, you got to meet her. You, you know. Hey, oh, I'm, I mean, you know, look, I, I'm easily impressed. That's not true. I'm actually not. And so At I'm all. impressed at all and so i am impressed and like you know like, look nick only knows smart people but this and they're all smart people and i just i there's a moment here where like you learn something eye-opening and look all of it's great and i love it a lot and it's it, it's it's incredible and i'm a fan 
every time I talk with her, like you, James, I learn something new and I walk away feeling fulfilled and full and even accomplished. Um, but, but that has been the case since 2008 with Angela. She is just brilliant and wonderful. She is literally brilliance materialized. She's goals. She's goals. Let's just Absolute say goals. she's goals. 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 Yeah, so, you know, we will jump right into the interview. We hope you enjoy and please do stick around afterwards where James and I, you know, comment a little bit on the, the world happenings to round out this episode. Oh, it's a good one. Please enjoy. Well, hello, Dr. James K. Harris, and special hello to Dr. Angela Castaneda. How are y'all? Good. How are you? Oh, I'm super excited. <laughs> it's going to be an amazing ball. It's a ball already. We've got the energy here. We've all got our drinks. <laughs> it's summertime. Angela's like rocking, dear listener, this amazing red lip. I should have worn mine. I wish I had got the cue. Oh my God, the Zoom game. It's on point and I'm not not jealous. <laughs> oh my goodness. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yes, I, honestly. So, you know, listener, as you are aware, James and I are doing the Summer Conversation Series and we are conversing with people who have had meaningful, impactful uh effects in our lives. And I am actually so happy that you were able to carve out space. Uh, Professor Castaneda, Angela, if I may, um, you are such a light inspiration, motivation, a source. Angela is not only a full professor of anthropology at DePaul University, but she served as my advisor while I was at DePaul and is likely 80% of 80, 85% of the reason <laughs> why I have a PhD and why I pursued any of what I'm doing now. We have maintained contact and I just cannot say enough great and amazing things uh, in your name. It's truly an honor to have you here. So thank you so much for participating. Absolutely, Nick. I when anytime I see you in my inbox on in my text, phone call, <laughs> name popping up on the cell phone, I'm grabbing it right away because you're just such I mean, I just, you know, care for you so much. And I'm so glad that we've maintained contact. And it's been amazing just what, I mean, not that I had, I knew that you, you did amazing things at DePaul, but then like watching you to go on and finish grad school and now in your tenure track career, it's just, it's so, it's so lovely. It feels, it fills my heart and it's really what like motivates me to like keep doing what I'm doing. So thank you. I'm Gratitude happy to just watch around. it. I love it so much. I'm, I'm <laughs> no, seriously, all I could do, I, I could, we could get to the questions, but we should get to the questions because we I'll should get to the gush. questions. But just before gush. we do, I just will also want to say, like, truly, your name has come. When I said to Nick, we should do a conversation. He was Angela, Angela. We should do, I want Angela first. He's like, you, <laughs> this has been a long time coming. And when I tell you, <laughs> he comes by the love, honestly. Oh, my goodness. That is so sweet. 
every which way and sideways, um, <laughs> for sure. But you know, I'll start. I can start with our first of the four questions to Angela, and that is, what's the first thing you loved learning? So I, you know, uh, full disclosure, I did listen to all of your summer conversations <laughs> with all of your other guests. So even before you sent me, you know, the questions, which thank you so much, I did listen to other folks and I was just, wow, you know, uh, all of your guests were amazing and, uh, you know, had such, um, you know, great answers. And it just, it helped me kind of think through it because, well, first of all, your questions are, were are, are wonderful. I love them and really got me to stop and think and really reflect on things. And so like for this one, I had like a moment, like a specific moment that came to my, like flooded my memory. And it was, and I was telling my mom about it. She was like, how do you, you know, remember? I was like, I just remember this specific moment um, because I was thinking about something that uh, one of the first things that I love learning really was language. Cause I did not grow up in a household where we spoke Spanish. I grew up speaking English. My mother spoke English, but my grandmother and my great grandmother spoke Spanish. And I would remember going over to my grandmother's house and, you know, I would hear some Spanish, but it wasn't something that was like taught to me. Right. But I remember one day, like my grandmother giving me this book and I actually still have it. I went and looked in my son's room to see what it was. And it's just a history of the United States in Spanish, this old book, 1972 publication. And I remember sitting down at my grandmother's house and I knew how to pronounce like the sounds like phonetically. And I would just sit there and I was so proud of myself because I would just sit and like, like try to pronounce every single word in this book and just like read. I didn't really, I probably, I don't remember like I knew, like I was learning the history of the US, but I was proud of myself that I could like start to formulate and say some of these words. And it was like this moment that really, really stuck with me and was like, oh my gosh, like I love this. I love learning this language. I want to learn this language. And it wasn't until many years later. I mean, I did Spanish in like public school, but we all know how that is, okay? Mm, yes, we do. <laughs> and so like- yeah, right? Donde esta el baño? Thank you. I was going to go there. Yeah, absolutely. So like, um, I mean, I did that. And, but it wasn't until many years later when I was a junior in high school that, um, you know, sitting there over the loudspeaker, wah, 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 the announcements. And I remember hearing, you know, you can apply for something to like study abroad or so. And I was like, boom, I'm going to do it, you know? And I remember filling out the paperwork and my parents were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like they didn't think I would get it. They didn't think I would really go. <laughs> they thought it was not. And then like I made it through the first round. I made it through the second round. And then like the third round, like finalists, like we had to drive to South Bend, Indiana, because I'm from Northwest Indiana and um, to go do an interview. And my parents had to be interviewed too. And I remember my parents thinking, God, what is happening? You know, like, mm. is she really going to do this? And then I ended up getting it and was sent to Colombia in South America for a year to finish my high school. And, and then again, it was there immersed like language, which of course, language and culture are right, you know, next intertwined. Mm -hmm. And I just loved it. And that set me up that experience set me up for so much of the rest of my life. So I think language and, and like just the love of learning language and then wanting to learn Portuguese and living in Brazil and like it just kind of but I remember it starting from that moment at my grandmother's house with that book and thinking like I could do this, you know. 
That's um, incredible. I I have like conservatively 12,000 questions, but I'm going to start with the one that I won't be able to make it past without asking. What what do you remember from a people's history of the United States written in Spanish in 1972? Like what oh. what are the kinds of facts about America, I guess is what I'm after. <laughs> No, yeah. So that's the. Th I mean, I think. But the thing about that book. I mean, I was young because this was before my grandmother passed, and she must have passed when I was in third grade. So I was probably in second grade. So I don't. I was. It wasn't like the the content that I was absorbing. It was more just like pronouncing these words in Spanish about los Estados Unidos, y la historia, mm -hmm. y el Capitolio, and like just basic. It was. It was really just like basic government like how the government is structured kind of thing it was not a i mean wow. we all know how these histories of the united states yes. are written mm. so it wasn't <laughs> it was not um it was not howard zinn it wasn't you know <laughs> it, it was it For was definitely, yeah um so anyway yeah i don't That's really incredible. remember anything else about that do you think like j just keep pushing on it do you think like your interest in learning language was about like because you made this really fascinating connection between language and culture. And I'm wondering, like, if it was the sort of programmatic, like, I like learning a new skill of learning a language, or if it was like this doorway into like, now I know something about my grandmother that I couldn't understand, or if it was maybe both. Absolutely. I think it was both of those things. But I think deep down inside, as a young child, I might not have been able to like articulate this. But as I got older, you know, there was there was a lot of, there were a lot of questions for me always about like, you know, to my mother, like, why didn't you learn Spanish? Why didn't you teach me Spanish? And I and for a long time and, and you know, I've had these conversations with my mother and said, you know, I was resentful at, at a certain period in my life mm -hmm. of like, why, you know, how could you have lived in a household where you didn't learn the language? And, and it, you know, I was too young and naive and I didn't realize what it was like for her to mm -hmm. be you know, one of the only Mexican families living, you know, you know, being in their part of the city um, and the kind of discrimination and the racism that they suffered. And I was too young and didn't realize that. And now reflecting back on it, you know, um, you know, my heart hurts because I know what my mother went through and I know she would have loved to learn it. And, and now she always says like, you know, I wish my mother, I wish I would have learned it. You know, I wish and so it's it's an interesting point so i do think that you know language to me is all about identity it's all about culture mm -hmm. and maybe there was something inside of me as a very young child you know wondering like the secret language that my grandmother had like what was that you know i want to be you know i want to know what's the secret you know mm -hmm. I, as an anthropologist i want to know like what's going on you know what are these people saying what you know i don't want to be on the outside i want to have a and so maybe it was a little bit of that too and and i think um i think you're absolutely right james like when i did after i came back from colombia and was fluent in spanish it was a my whole identity my whole life changed like literally, like I remember being in college at DePaul and like, like my name changed my whole entire <laughs> life from, from, you know, birth to 17, even though my name is Angela, my family, no one calls me Angela. Everyone calls me Angel. And so like my whole life, I was Angel. And then when I came back from Colombia, where I was Angela, I was, my, my whole identity had changed and that my name had changed. And it was like, uh, 
everything, everything, like the world just looks so different. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I can't stress enough, James, like this connection between like my identity and language and culture. Wow. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing so much, Angela, Angela. And <laughs> I remember actually having very similar conversations with you at DePaul. And if the listener didn't catch, Angela also went to DePaul. Uh, and we have very similar backgrounds in that way about Spanish being the kind of secret language. And I remember you sharing this with us in one of your, I think it was human cultures course. And I distinctly remember you showing a video of your grandmother cooking because you wanted to remember a recipe. And mm -hmm. it was a way for you to also show, yeah. right? Like documenting uh, yeah. not only your grandmother and the cooking, uh, but you know the recipe, which is also tied to identity and culture, and I, I'm never going to forget those conversations. And you know, articulating it in that way, I think, is not, or rather, it's more common than I think people are willing to admit, especially among second, third generation mm -hmm. Mexicanos, Latinos, you know, mm -hmm. wherever. And it's because of that articulation of the kind of violence that many mm -hmm. of our parents or grandparents suffered, right? And so. Um, Can I dive again, in a little? Because I have like, I because because this is because I'm fascinated. And also, you know, like this, this feels to me like of a piece of the thing that I don't have with my family. And so I'm very curious about like, the way you feel about your mother's decision to not like engage, how what it's like to negotiate that because at some level, like there's both the sense of understanding, right, what it was, but also like your sense that what she did is not what I'm doing. And I guess I wonder, like, with your own like first of all I don't know do you have kids do you want them whatever but like in your life sort of as a parent do you think about that dynamic and how to negotiate it like do you how do you feel about your mother's choice to not teach you Spanish I feel like she didn't have a choice I feel like it wasn't her choice and in fact you know according to her like her story of it is very much like you know she had um eight siblings and she said that you know one day one of her siblings came home from school and had been, um, you know, got in trouble with the teacher for saying something in Spanish. And her father was like, that's it. We're not speaking Spanish anymore to these kids. And that was the end of it for them. Mm -hmm. And so like, she never really kind of had that choice, I guess. Like they just kept it this secret language between my grandparents and their friends or my great grandmother or, and so between my mother and her siblings, they didn't speak Spanish. And then that was kind of where it was lost. And also kind of like, I mean, yeah, there's just so much here. I mean, I was just at my parents like, uh, you know, last week and my mother shared a story with me about what it felt like being the only Mexican American person in the, in the neighborhood where we live. It's a house that she lives in now is a house I grew up in. So it's, you know, 40 some years she's lived in this house. And, and she told me, you know, a, you know, a story about someone who lives in the neighborhood still lives there that was like horrendous. And I was just like, wow, you know, I mean, these things are still coming out. Um, so and then reflecting, James, about like my own, um, I have two children, 13 and eight years old. And this, I don't want to jump to your last question, but it, it definitely ties into your last question, because language is so, you know, we, it's, if I had even a penny for every time I said in Espanol to my children, <laughs> like asking them to say whatever they just said in Spanish, I would be a millionaire because it's a, I mean, it's my most 
it's the most important thing to me that my children can be feel confident and comfortable expressing themselves in written form and verbally in Spanish and in English. And it's because of where we live, I think because of um, we don't have any immediate family near us, it's, it's, it's hard. And they're in a school where they're all the time in English. So they are English dominant speakers. And, you know, it's just a, it's a constant, constant um, challenge. And so some way it's like, here was my mother not challenged in that way to get me to speak Spanish. I'm on the other side, like challenged. You know, it's just a, it's a different time. It's a, yeah. you know, it's a different time in the world. And it's like, she would wanted to protect me and thought that not learning the language was protecting me. And I, and I want to arm my children with, with the language mm. and, and a love and a, and a confidence in their culture and their identity. Um, so I don't know. You're making me. You're making me. <laughs> think Look, that was an amazing answer, and you've done more than enough. Truly, I. Yeah. Wow. Hmm. So I think it might be appropriate for the next question, which is, who was one of your most important teachers? So this one is. Um, of course, my parents, I feel like were really important teachers in my life and still are. Um, I feel like there's so many decisions I can't make without picking up the phone and, you know, getting their their sage advice on. But I feel like this question, the person I always go to that I always think of first is Andrew Williams, who was my professor of anthropology at DePauw and was my advisor um, at DePauw. And I distinctly remember the room in Asbury Hall where I had my first human cultures introductory anthropology class that sometimes I get to teach in and it's like, woo, it's just straight. <laughs> um, but I remember going in and sitting in the front row because I was just a nerd. And um, like he came in and he put the map of the of the world like upside down and was like, you know, this is back in the day before we had like all kinds of technology. And, um, you know, he put it upside down and and we're all just sitting and he was just like, you know, talking, like doing his thing. I don't know if it was the first day, it might've been the first day. I remember just being like, does he know it? You know, the map is upset. Like I was just so worried <laughs> for him. Like I, I, but I, you know, obviously it's to, to get us to force us to think about like, how do we see the world? How do we envision, you know, what does the world look like to us? Right. But um, he was, he was just so instrumental in, opening up my world to anthropology. And not only that, but he was, you know, my advisor, my mentor. Um, he's the one that encouraged me to do the summer research opportunity program um, at the University of Michigan. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All so, SROP alum on this call. Right here. Yes. And I did it yeah. because Angela was like, you should go get a PhD. <laughs> you should do this program. And here we are. Look, you can't be what you can't see. And that might be true. Mm. <laughs> yes. So yeah, he, 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 you know, I had never um, thought about graduate school. I didn't, you know, but I knew that, you know, Andrew had made such an amazing um, impact in my life. Like, you know, going into his office and like sitting down with him and having these one-on-ones and like figuring out my life and like encouraging me to study abroad in Brazil. And um, 
you know, encouraging me to apply to graduate school, like all that was him. You know, I wanted to be Andrew Williams. I wanted (laughs) to do that and have my comfy office and have students come in and sit with them and, you know, plan out, map out their lives or like, I wanted to do that because he was so amazing and, and just, just, just an amazing person in, in my life. And so he, um, you know, I am still in touch with him and, um, yeah, I just always cite him as the person who is, is instrumental in my life. I, I can't say enough things about how much I love that. I love that a lot. That makes me very happy. And I don't know that we discussed that. So I guess I'm also in the, the Andrew Williams tutelage, right? Is that what that means? But yes. then like this, like really uh, in kind of piece about mapping out lives. Cause I remember having that conversation with you mm-hmm. about what do I do? Not, not thinking or saying, and I'm, it's really encouraging to hear that you're still in contact with him. And I mean, just personally, I'm curious what office was his in Asbury? Cause I remember having all kinds of conversations. Was he on the second floor or the third floor? He was on the third floor Okay. in Matthew Owari's, um, if you knew okay. where Matthew Owari's office, that mm-hmm. was Andrew mm-hmm. Williams' office. Mm-hmm. Wow. Sorry, that's just like the insider. I loved it. I love the inside baseball. Please don't stop. I can't, I, oh, I have, okay. We have more questions, but I kind of almost have a follow-up, which is just like, and I've been thinking this a lot as we've been asking people this question about who's your greatest teacher. But like, I guess what I'm wondering is like, do you have a sense of what part of their pet, what part of your pedagogy you got from them? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a good question. I mean, if I think about that, I feel like he was just really good at facilitating, you know, like his ability to facilitate classroom discussions, like to make people feel comfortable in the space, but also noting that it needs to be like a brave space, like where we have to challenge ourselves, right? I feel like that's something that I kind of try to strive for in my classes. You know, he wouldn't, he wasn't up there and lecturing, you know, on and on. He he <laughs> made the space comfortable so that we could get down to it. You know, let's have the conversations. Let's pull out our questions. Let's, let's do that. And maybe that's something that I try to do in my spaces. I don't know that it's something like one thing in particular. I need to think about it maybe a little bit more. He was also, I felt like really, I'm pretty flexible with my, like as things, I mean, I, I'm organized. I'm definitely, Nick would say mm-hmm. I'm, I'm organized mm-hmm. <laughs> instructor, but I feel like I'm also willing to, and maybe this is something more late, later career where I'm more willing now to be like in the middle of the semester, like, oh, that's not working. Oh, you want to do this? Let's do it. Like kind of thing. And I feel like that was also him a little bit, but I don't know. That's a great question, James. I, I love that the not knowing is fine for me. I'm just, I'm so interested in this. Like, cause I think I've spent a lot of time cause this whole summer has just been us like asking who's, who are our influences and sort of trying to disentangle what that looks like and what that means. And along the way, I've just been thinking about like, yeah what do we learn from the people we learn things from? Like, this is someone who taught me a lot but I guess like now I'm at the place where I'm wondering like and what specifically is it that I think I took away from that? And so it's a huge, it's, and maybe it's vibes, right? Maybe the answer is actually like like that they, he taught you how to run a classroom where you're flexible. And like, that's the thing that not everybody does. Right. And you know what you're making me think too, is I feel like he made me, he made me feel seen. There. That's real and hard. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
and and that's what I, I want to do. You know, I, he he I was someone in his class. He knew me. You know, I felt I felt that. And and maybe that's also what I so appreciated and what I want to try to do too. I know I'm not always successful, but like I I I want to try to do that too. I honestly think that trying makes the difference. So that's incredible. Um, all right, I think maybe if we're ready, I will grab our next question, uh, which is just sort of like, okay, so how do you cope with uncomfortable or uneasy situations in your work or otherwise? So I am an Aquarius and as an Aquarius, <laughs> I, my default is silence. My default is to go silent. That's like the easy route for me. Um, and that was like an easy question to kind of like, oh yeah, like that's, that's where I go. Um, but I think that, uh, and I think in my personal life, um, and professionally, like that's just kind of part of me, but I think that, um, as my work over the past decade has been more focused on, on birth and breath is so important to birth. I feel like I go, I try to lean more to going back to my breath when things become uncomfortable um, professionally uh, or personally, I try to remind myself, the only thing I have is my breath. Like I can go back to that, you know? And that's something I do a lot in, in my doula work. You know, we are constantly trying to get folks to get back to their breath. So yeah, I would say that. I'm so glad you brought it up so that I didn't have to, cause now we can just talk about being a doula. What? <laughs> I have okay so let's just start with what where how did you why did you do this well I did it because I I had a doula at my at my son's birth and afterwards I just thought like um you know I could do that you know I could be the I could do that for someone else you know and I, I was a it was a personal thing that I wanted especially because with my son it wasn't the kind of birth that I had envisioned to have but I had a really great like um um kind of uh healing postpartum through my like breastfeeding relationship with my son and a lot of that I was like I could do that for someone else I could be a postpartum doula so I actually started by getting trained to be a postpartum doula because I was like, oh, I want to be a breastfeeding advocate for folks, you know? Um, and so I started doing that and just personally. And then I was like, I would get in and be working with people. And I would realize a lot of the things that they were dealing with were things, re the result of things that happened at the birth. And I was coming in at the end. And I was like, no, 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 no. I need to go back and get trained as a birth doula so that I can maybe help. So some of those things don't happen and they don't end up here hurting postpartum. And so I went and was trained as a birth doula. And then I was just like, whoa, there are so many interesting anthropological questions that we could get at. And that's when I kind of thought about, well, why don't I just blend this passion that I have to be a birth advocate and um, a breastfeeding advocate and with my research. And that's kind of how that kind of blended together. And so now like I do things as a volunteer in the community, but I also have my research and my scholarly work. Um, so yeah, it's just beautifully blended together and being mindful of your breath is at so much at the heart of what we do. And which is interesting now given like COVID and the coronavirus mm. and all this stuff. I mean, talk about politics of breath that we're like mm. living, right? And then yes. here we are as a doula and thinking about birth and how 
breath is so important. I mean, it's just, it's just so many, so many things going on. So have you been doulaing during the time of COVID? Yes. Yes. Uh, have, but I just, um, not, not in 20, um, not in 2020, but in okay. this 2021, when I was able to get vaccinated, then I was able to go into the hospital. Mm-hmm. And are you finding that like, is it the same? Does it feel like something has changed? Uh, oh yeah. I mean, there, I mean, you do you mean like, I mean, procedurally protocols have definitely changed. I guess I mean all of it. Cause <laughs> yeah. all of it. Yeah. I mean, like, protocols have changed in terms of like, who's even allowed to be there. Right. Like how many people are right. allowed to be there? Like, you know, in the past, there could be like a whole family, you know, waiting in the waiting room or several other people actually in the room as a person, person is birthing. And now it's just like maybe a partner and maybe a doula, you know? Mm. And so, okay. And so there's that there's protocols about like, you know, in some hospitals, you could not leave the room. Once you came in, there was no leaving the room. And normally you can go in and out of the room. You could go to the cafeteria. There's a snack room. There's so there's that kind of stuff. And then, of course, everyone has their masks on, um, although they usually test the, um, the laboring person to see. And then they don't have to usually in the right. hospitals I've been, they haven't had to wear a mask. It's asking a lot of a person yeah. giving birth. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> and um, it, def- it definitely feels I don't know. I mean, the, the births that I have gone to again have been in 2021 when I feel like it would have been much different in 2020, you know, when we were still, I mean, I don't know. I don't even know where we are right now with coronavirus. And so I guess part of why I'm asking is I'm thinking a lot about like what you're saying about how there used to be a lot more people and now it's maybe you and a partner. And I'm wondering if like, cause it seems like part of when you told, when I learned that you were dueling on the side, I thought, how? Because like teaching is so much emotional labor and then birth is Mm. so much emotional labor. And it seems like if you're the only person in the room, like, is it, does it feel like it's more or the same? Oh yeah. No, it doesn't necessarily, it feels, it doesn't feel like it's more. It's still, it's still the same, whether there's five people in the room or just me and the partner and the laboring person whatever energy and stuff is i'm carrying all that i'm take i ha, i feel all that i have all that and i will say james that like i mean there was you know quite a, a a period where i didn't really take any i wasn't going to any births during the academic year if something would come up in the summer then maybe i would do it because you're right it was like it, too much and really the too much part of it is when you're a doula you're on call for you know at least two weeks before their due week due date and two weeks after this, that's a month of your life that you are just like, I'm not going anywhere far. I'm not going to drink because I don't want someone to call me. And I just had a glass of wine and I got to run to the hospital. I don't want to do that. You know? So like, if I wanted to have a glass of wine, it would just, you, you just changes your behavior, changes what you can do. And so that's really, I, that's really, um, that's a lot to do. Um, and so I, on top of all the academic stuff. So it's not like I'm I'm some of my other um, lovely doula colleagues who doula a lot. Mine is sparsely <laughs> there. But I think I, what, what I just want to say one other thing, Nick, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but just to say that like with COVID and actually in the spring semester teaching all online, it was a little bit easier to do the doula stuff because I didn't have to, you know, drive an hour to to work and be an hour away. I was right here and it was a little bit easier to manage. 
my question is more i think practical and pragmatic and that is simply does one get on angie's list to find a doula like what kind of network <laughs> circulation exists among like because i you know i am born with a body that will likely not give birth and so or will not give birth not likely it will not give yeah birth. no he's made a and choice. so <laughs> and and so i'm curious about the kind of networks that you now are embedded in and how you become a part of them and what type of kind of circulations existed that you kind of became a part of i guess right. yeah no that's a really good question nick there's i mean there's lots of professional organizations you know because the whole doula doula has become professionalized in many ways for good you know there's pros and cons to that whole thing which we don't need to get into now but like um so if you're a you know an active member of doulas of north america which is the largest and oldest professional doula organization they have a whole website that you can go on and search based on where you live to find a doula there are a lot of facebook local facebook groups like here in bloomington there's one um you know people have their own websites you know that mm. kind of thing but like there are small so i would say like here where i am in bloomington you know there's a smaller group of folks and they get together and so you can get into that or uh, get in get with those folks via facebook or um some of the childbirth educators in town usually sometimes they have a list of folks that they recommend or people will ask the childbirth educators um so that's kind of a couple of different ways i i can't imagine getting the full professor and being like i'd like another job where i'm responsible for life and livelihood <laughs> But, but respect to you. <laughs> All the respect. Thanks. The respect. And I was shuffling around back here because I have an edited collection from Angela that you sent me on the doula. And I'm like looking through my bookshelves and it's here, I have it. Um, <laughs> and I read the introduction and mm. yeah. So, yeah, yeah, thank yeah. you. So, 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 what I think I appreciate is that you know, to to James's point about taking on you know what what to us appears like more work, or right this thing that you have to do. I think that you're reminding me and you know modeling as you always have what it's mm -hmm. like to merge one's personal and professional life in a very what I look what I feel like is very seamless. Right. Yeah. From my perspective, it seems very seamless on my end to to have you talk about, you know, your life and your work in such a way that you're even to weave them in a way that, you know, ultimately, I think makes sense to you. But also it, it's translating that way, too. And I appreciate that. And I think that anthropologists are those invested in questions about people in different cultures, you know, embed themselves and, you know, the objects of analysis are different than someone who's studying English or, you know, someone who is uh, more traditional kind of arts and humanities, you know, mm. so, you know, to that point, that's what I was thinking as you were talking. Well, I'm glad that it appears seamless. I don't know <laughs> if my family would say the same thing, <laughs> but um, I, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Truly, I have learned that family are the wrong people to turn to for answers about how your career is going. <laughs> They're lovely. They are not the right people to ask. So true. <laughs>
And so then maybe on that note, uh, our final question is, I think far and away the hardest to answer, but like, that's just me personally. Tackle it however you'd like. When I ask you this insane question, which is in your life or in your career, when you get what you want, what will you have? So I think in my career, um, when I, when I, I, I just go back on for a second, when I first, when I came back to DePauw after I finished, actually, I wasn't done with my PhD. I was, I was writing, I hadn't defended yet. And an opportunity arose to become a posse mentor at DePauw as just like a staff position. And so I went and I interviewed for that. And um, I remember the, I forgot who the person's not, no longer at DePauw, vice president had asked me, well, you know, where do you see yourself in 10 years or what, you know, what do you want in your career? And I was like, oh, I want to have this office, this like cozy office with all these books and like a line of students outside waiting to see me and, or just some, maybe not a line, some students interested in seeing me. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, and what I think now I'm like, that's what I have. I have this office, it's full of books. I have students that wanna come see me. I feel like, you know, I mean, I'm a full professor, which I know you, you mentioned that a couple of times and it's still to me, it's just like, I guess I am. You know, like, I don't really, that hasn't <laughs> oh, quite- yeah. Living the dream, you're fully living the dream. You know? <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and so I feel like professionally, like that I have that and, and, and that's wonderful. And I, and I love that. Um, that doesn't mean that, I don't know, I, I, that there aren't other things like that I would, I would still want. Um, but I think for me, this question, I, I focus more on like the personal aspect of it. And, and it goes back to the whole, la our language conversation with the first question, which is like, what do I want personally? Like, what will I have um, when I've gotten everything I want personally? Or I forgot how you worded it, James, but it's like, I will have children who feel confident and 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 who feel um connected with their mexican-american ancestry their identity their language their culture that to me would be like amazing like if that's what i have you know that's what i want so much more than anything else um personally and so yeah that's that's incredible and beautiful and do you inspiring. have a sense of like what that connection looks like is it like is it linguistic is it sort of like the food like how when they're connected what is it you how what does that operationalize as first you know for me it's it's very much linguistic it very much is and again i don't know james like how much and nick how much is it is it something because i still feel the loss that my mother had when she lost that language mm. and am i trying to do everything I can to make sure that doesn't happen again. You know, is that where that's coming from? Where I'm so focused on the language, mm. you know? Um, I mean, yeah, I, food is important too. Food is definitely tied to culture, right? Because that's really all I had growing up. I didn't really have the language, but I knew that when it was like my birthday, my mother brought bunuelos. She didn't bring <laughs> cupcakes, you know, and all the other kids thought that was so cool. And I was like, can we just have cupcakes, you know? <laughs> So like, I know that like food is definitely important, but to me, there's something about, it will look like my children speaking and being able to express themselves very comfortably in two language and, and like seamlessly moving in and out. Mm. That's what it would look like. I mean, I, 
I think that makes a lot of sense. I think especially given how aggressively this country has tried to route out like bilingualness as a sort of like way of being, it, yeah, it feels like an act of resistance. Absolutely it is, absolutely. And so it's like, in some of, in some ways, is it, you know, if I, if my children are able to do that, like, will I feel like that's made up for what my mother was taken away from her? Like, will that resistance, will that be, will that be that? I don't know. But, um, yeah. I think as you're, as you're talking to, you know, I mean, culture, like language, shift, change, and it's, it's dynamic, it's unfolding, it's porous, right? And so, you know, based on what you've shared with us, and I can't believe your son is 13. I remember seeing him when he was like two and three. Um, wow. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, like, you're all, you know, as, as you're, as you're, as you're communicating with us, I think that there's this piece here that, you know, you, you, you have an external affirmation, obviously, from me. And I think James about, you know, oh. you are doing what you're doing. And like, you're setting them up for more success than, than we can even realize in moments, you know, mm. that, that I think that sometimes we can, for better or for worse, have blinders on that are tethered directly to insecurity or to anxiety or to past selves that it, in, in, in many ways sometimes help sharpen you know, the things that we are gifting kind of not 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 only for ourselves, but to, you know, in your case, your children or I am a, I'm a direct descendant of your gifts. You know, I am. And like, I think that, you know, if 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 I could be any indication about what success looks like when they encounter you, then it is only like you they are going to rule the worlds and they're going to conquer the worlds that they create and that they invent so you know i think you're doing amazing um and this is making me all emotional because i'm thinking about my mom now and you know i think that that it, i'm hearing a lot and james before we got on the podcast was also sharing he's actually in ohio with his mother celebrating a birthday with her and so yep. mother also is like a theme right now and the kind of caregiving that that, yep. that mothers have uh, and give i think is something that for those of us who are lucky enough, and it sounds like we really are, even with, you know, trepidation at times based on, you know, how we were raised, you know, I think that we're all very fortunate. Um, and I'm grateful to be having this conversation with you, James and Angela. And you know, I'm thinking about, you know, the, the things that my mom wants and that she had imagined and that she had envisioned. Um, and it doesn't always look like maybe the way that she mm-hmm. could, you know, could have even conceived of or imagined and so this is just my really long belabored rant of just being like you do it you, like you don't need this but like external affirmation and validation on our end like I look do you this. don't need this but let me just say i like i love my mom a ton i think she's great i came all the way to dayton for her but i i i could, <laughs> I could sign up for a mom who insisted on learning spanish that's like it, it's 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 those little steps right it's like it's all the things you don't realize are going to make a huge impact when you later look back and you're like how was i raised in the world what were the values that i was given and it's like there's just there's no understating how important it is that you were raised in a household where difference is okay Mm. yes absolutely absolutely 
And yeah, I think especially for those of us who grew up in like non-white sort of non sort of traditional households, like being reminded that our way of being in the world is valid and that we are allowed to be who we are and we're allowed to speak the way we speak and we're allowed to show up the way we show up. It's like, it doesn't, you don't realize until you spent your whole life never being told that how much it would have mattered if you had been. Mm. That is true. James is also one of my favorite people because he does these he does these things very regularly with us where he just will like drop this little nugget of like I, just I have, not and I'm like oh. no 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 I have heard James drop these on your podcast I know this is his like he does Look, yeah I am the great synthesizer of brilliant things other people already said <laughs> you know it's a you know it's a skill that not everyone has James so here we are yeah absolutely absolutely. Yeah, I'm just here to look pretty. Um, so <laughs> and you're nailing it. You are. You know, sans a sans a red lip, I think that <laughs> I I can. Um, I'm doing I'm doing all right. I'm not I'm not hurt. No complaints on this end. Um, Angela, we are you know rounding out. Is there anything you'd like you know to share or to promote or to you know round out the conversation with? Um, I just want us all to take a deep breath. Mm. Oh. I'm going to be thinking about breath for the next week. Like I, my mind is blown and I will be unpacking it for a very long time. Will you lead us in a deep breath? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So let's all just relax your shoulders, relax your face, close your eyes, take a deep breath in through your nose. Feel that air coming through all the way, fill up your lungs and release it back out through your nose. Beautiful. Beautiful. Oh yeah. I would I would happily pay for that service. <laughs> I would do it for you for free. Oh, I have enjoyed this, I think, a, a ton. A, a, a metric ton. Thank you so much. No, I can't think, I just want to thank both of you. It's been so, like I said, I love listening to your podcast. I feel like I know you, James, and I want, <laughs> to know, I want to know you even more now after our hour. And Nick, you know, I just, I don't, it's hard for me to really put into words how much you mean to me. And um, I'll get too emotional if I try. So just thank you. Deep, deep gratitude, respect. I love you, Angela. Love you too. Nothing but love. Thank you oh, so much job. for being here. Hi there. Wasn't that just lovely? I, I have... I'm still in tears. I have thoughts about my breath that I will never get over. I can't stop thinking about and hearing myself breathing. Um, yeah, man, we should all be that thoughtful. Seriously, and I would recommend nose breathing, your mouth breather, that's what I would recommend, <laughs> you're nasty. I would definitely, you know, use your nose, No, your mouth I've breather. made my choice and I'm standing by it. I, I, we can hear it, um, no. Um, joking. So, you know, we are now rounding out this episode and we like to frame, you know, the last section with a few questions, which I will pose first over to James. And that is, 
What you reading, friend? So I'm I'm back to reading some texts that are like you know uh, scholarly. To, I've been reading a lot of fiction. I'm just reading a, like a ton of fiction, just like embracing stories and storytellers. And I'm trying to get back into like criticism and what does writing criticism look like as I'm getting back into the mode of like oh right this book it has to happen this fall. Uh, and so I'm finishing up the intro, finishing. And so I've been reading other people's work and I've landed on Karen Jamie's really fascinating new book out of NYU Press, uh, The Queer New Yorican, Racialized Sexualities and Aesthetics in Losiata. Uh, it, it is, it, it, it is, a really fascinating take on how to talk about New York City. Um, and so I've been thinking a lot about like, how do we narrate identity? How do we narrate sort of the specificity of geography? And it is a mm. book that has a lot to say about both of those things. Like what does place mean? What does identity mean? Where does identity meet place? Uh, and mm -hmm. for, especially in our context, like working in the Bronx where so many of our students are Dominican and Puerto Rican, sort of making sense out of this, like this, this specificity of this identity is I think a deeper project than often gets credit. Um, and so we're, you know, dealing with a Munoz alum who is also sort of working in the sort of Munoz, Jose Munoz tradition. And it's a really fascinating book that has a lot of like critical and sort of methodological interventions that are absolutely worth looking into. Mm. Yeah, thank you for sharing. I definitely think I need to probably know this. Um, so thank you for for sharing. Um, and, and it seems to take on particular relevance and urgency because now you are in New York City and absolutely many of your students are also, you know, coming from varied backgrounds. And so, you know, it, it, it won't hurt you by any means. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And since you're selfish and don't like to ask me questions, I am reading. Um, I didn't ask and I don't care. But since you have and to you tell never me, what do. are you and reading, you never, Nick? never do. God. Oh. Well, I'm still on my little academic, you know, syllabus for the summer, and I am starting to think about a second project that I started out at OSU with some colleagues. We've called it the Transformative Access Project, so I'm thinking a lot about disability these days. Um, I'm actually reading uh, a book out of University of Minnesota Press, the, the latest from Liat Ben Moshi, uh, their Decarcerating Disability, Deinstitutionalization, and Prison Abolition. Uh, according to the excerpt online, this provides case studies that show how prison abolition is not an unattainable goal, but rather a reality, and how it plays out in different arenas of incarceration. Anti-psychiatry, the field of intellectual disabilities, and the fight against the prison industrial complex. Her analysis of lived experience, history, and culture charts a way out of a failing system of incarceration. So you know how there are always the blurbs at the back of a book that, you know, can can yes. oftentimes indicate who this person is conversation with, 1, as well as like who is endorsing. I'm just gonna say Angela Davis, Alison Kafer, and Deed Spade have all blurbed this book. And so it's one that I just feel like I need to know anyway. So not that that's get like- Angela Davis and Dean Spade to blurb my book? <laughs> like, I, yeah, I don't, so I'm thrilled. And they are actually also a colleague uh, in the University of Illinois system, but they're up at Chicago. So maybe one day we will get to meet each other um, as I parse my way through. Um, I'm excited. Go I'm off really, really University excited. of Illinois. Quite proud. come through, come through. Yeah. So I'm excited that about it. Great. I mean, I'm excited. I'm as excited as you can be about prison abolition, and you know, 
I mean, hey, the, the I think those of us who are excited about prison abolition are as excited about prison abolition as we are exhausted about prison. <laughs> Fair and true. Friend, what you thinking? So I am thinking that I am so ready. I've had such a long day today in particular that really all that's on my mind right now is making myself a mezcal drink and sitting up on my <laughs> rooftop and we have had such oppressive heat lately. I'm talking like 90, like in the 90s, feeling like it's in the hundreds in central Illinois. And you couple that with the humidity and it is not only oppressive, it's actually disrespectful. And today <laughs> happens to be a day where it is in the mid 70s and the humidity is it's there, but it's not, you know, as high as it has been over the past few weeks. And so I really want to just kind of go up there and spend some time with myself, maybe get into more of this book as I'm also drinking a mezcal drink a little bit um, and really, really starting to focus on preserving my energy because, you know, it's something that didn't make its way into the interview, but that we talked about shortly after we interviewed Angela was she has two children who are about to start school next week children Ugh, in, in it's junior high and middle school, school and it's time. and it's back to school time and i was in utter shock as we said that and my yep. my mouth was literally open and i was thinking holy shit like it's here and so i need to start yep. preserving all my energy so there's that friend what you thinking honestly a lot of that i'm mostly thinking about a lot of that i'm realizing now as you as we were having that conversation at the end of our sort of conversation earlier uh, i was like oh that's right because it's this is this is it like it's the end of july which means on like monday it's august and i have to get back into the swing of doing things uh, and mm. so I've just been thinking about like work and getting the work schedule ready and getting ready to head back into work i've been thinking a lot about like cuny recently made the news and so we'll maybe drop this we'll drop this in the show notes uh but cuny recently made the news because we have decided that we are going to be canceling student debt for all the students who have a leftover balance during the pandemic. Uh, so any student who managed to like accrue a balance they were not able to pay off for the pandemic, CUNY is going to pay those bills. And if you already paid your bills and you're like, wait, what about me? They're going to give you $200, which feels mm. like a little bit of a slap in the face, but it's better than nothing. And so I've been mm. thinking a lot about like, what it looks like to move forward from here and both mm -hmm. how that feels like a really cool move we talked a lot about like student debt forgiveness on this show and mm -hmm. also if you're inside the cuny system you maybe are a bit aware that like we've been having a long conversation about the misappropriation of funds and i'm not entirely sure this solves that problem um, and so just been thinking a lot about school and getting back into the swing and the minutia and all the details and all the infighting and here we go again, I guess. But like, mm. you know, it's always the same and a little bit different. And so like, what yeah. is what is this in-person semester look like? And what right. are we, what does prepared yeah. mean in this context? Right. And Delta's yeah. out here. Delta's just out here. Delta is doing... out here eating the unvaccinated alive. And mm. what does that mean for all those of us who might have to work with those people? So it's just, mm. it's a lot of uncertainty and I'm leaning into like, I'm ready to get out of my house and I'm ready to, I'm ready to be back to doing what I love. I think I've been saying as long as we've had this show, I would like to do the job I was hired to do. Like, I mm -hmm. want to get back into my classroom. I want to teach mm -hmm. again. I, I like that. I'm good at it. Um, and so, yeah, both here, excited here. about that and also anxious about what it's going to look like. Mm. Very that, very, very that. Well, James, you know I love you, and we will get through this together, and yes. those of you who are still listening, 
to us. Um, we A, appreciate you, and B, you'll hear all about it in the months to come. Oh so, my God, will you? <laughs> you know, I think we might also take just a, just a very short hiatus, a short break. Um, so after this episode, there may be a little time either before our next one or shortly after the next one. So just kind of a heads up, you know. Um, we will absolutely going be back by the time shit gets real. Yeah, yeah. But we are gonna need also. to take at least a little bit of a nap. <laughs> right. I'm 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 getting really sick of seeing James's face every other week and My I God. I need a break. I need much. a break. <laughs> he he comes on with his little shaved head and his like nicely little manicured facial hair and he thinks like that's gonna like make up for all the times it's that I've had I got to, like, my hair cut when I first got vaccinated and then not since. And I'm going to my mother's birthday party this weekend. And when I tell you the subtle shade of my mother being like, So you're gonna cut your hair before you come though, right? <laughs> oh, yes, I like, will, ma'am. Like, yes, like I will. only a mother knows how. Like, only a Truly. mother knows how. Like, it wasn't mm. a question. It was just like, so but that will that will be done before I see you next? Pictures will be taken, you realize, James. <laughs> you, yeah. you know what this is. <laughs> right, right. Anywho, well, happy birthday to your mother. James, I love happy you. Happy birthday Be to my well, mother. and we will check in soon. Love uh, you. Love you much. Bye. Bye. Thank you.